listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning once again. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you're here with us this morning to worship the Lord in music and to study His Word. Please open with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If you're not sure where 2 Corinthians is, conveniently located just to the right of 1 Corinthians. So you should be able to find it based on that. You know, you, you can also just feel free, don't be shy, use the table of contents in your Bible. We want you to be able to follow along. For the past four weeks, we've been doing a series here at Whitefields on the topic of vision. We don't usually do a lot of uh, topical series here at Whitefields. For the most part, we like to study through books of the Bible, and we like to do it verse by verse. But um, we took, you know, we just said, this is the beginning of a new year, and we want to at the beginning of this year, take some time to look at what the Bible says on the topic of vision. And as we're doing that, our goal is to align our hearts and align our minds, both as individuals and a church, with God's vision for a couple specific areas. So the, the areas we've looked at so far, we looked at God's vision for our future. We looked at God's vision for our city. We looked at God's vision for your situation. Last week, you guys looked at God's vision for the church. And today, in our final segment, we're going to be looking at God's vision for others. So developing God's vision for others. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. Uh, hey, you know, if you've been blessed by any of these messages, I just want to encourage you. Uh, our podcast is free. Our, all of our messages available on our website. And what I would love is if you've been blessed by something, share that with others. You know, share those messages with others. Send them a link. That way, what's happening in here that God's doing can actually get out of these walls and into other people. It's also just a great tool. You know, if you've got somebody and you say, oh, you know, uh, there was something in this message, but by sending them that message, maybe they get to listen to a lot of other things that would be beneficial for them as well. So it's a great, almost evangelistic tool as well. Also, you know, next week we're starting a new series as we're finishing up this one. And it's kind of a new series, but it's kind of not because it's really the second half of a series that we started in November and then took a break from for Christmas and Advent and then the new year. So this series is called Pilgrim's Progress. And it's our study, you know, verse by verse through first and second Peter. So we finished first Peter at the end of November, but starting next week, we're going to get into second Peter. And that's exciting because guys, second Peter is one of those books in the Bible that a lot of people aren't familiar with. And so this is a cool opportunity. And it has a really great message, by the way. Next week, we're going to be looking at our first message in that series is called, you know, make your calling and election sure, which is from the text there. He talks about what it means to make your calling and election sure. So be sure to be here for that next week as we do that series and invite someone to join you who would be blessed by hearing that message and, and studying through Second Peter with us. So today we're finishing up our vision series with this message titled A Vision for Others. And I'll begin by reading our text and then we'll pray. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting in verse 16. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. 
This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and it is a treasure to us. Lord, help us that we would treasure it in our hearts, in our ears, in our minds as we study it today. Lord, may your living word speak to us, your living message, and may we be receptive to it, Lord. We ask that you would give us the enlightenment of our hearts by the power of your spirit as we study your word. Lord, apply these things to our lives. Help us to live them out. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So... The three things, here's, our, here's your outline for today. There are three things that this text brings to our attention in regard to developing God's vision for other people. Number one, the natural way of regarding people. Number two, a new way of regarding people. And number three, regarding him who regarded you. So that's gonna be our outline. So let's start off by looking at the natural way of regarding people. Let me ask you this. What would you call a person who hides from their problems? You don't have to answer that out loud, but, but uh, has that, uh, maybe that's been you at some point in your life. You've been that person who hides from your problems, who avoids things that are hard and difficult. So what would you call somebody who hides from hard things, who avoids people and things that they're afraid of? Well, you might not use some very friendly terms, would you? You might use words like coward. You might use words like weak. Well, in the book of Judges, chapter 6, we meet somebody like that. We meet somebody who, at that very moment, is hiding, scared, avoiding the problems in his life, not being very courageous, let's put it that way. And his name is Gideon. And the first time we meet him, here's what it says in Judges, chapter 6. Feel free to read that section as I'm talking to you about it. But here's what happens. It says that Gideon was there, and he was threshing wheat in a wine press. Threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you might just read over that and say, okay, cool, next, right? But and this is why it doesn't stick out to us, because most of us don't usually thresh our own wheat. Maybe you do, and if you do, then you know that a wine press is a weird place to do that. Most of us also don't have wine presses. But here's why this is a weird thing. It's not normal to thresh wheat in a wine press, because a wine press is essentially like a hole, a pit in the ground that's probably, you know, 15, 20 feet deep, and it's going to be round. This is where, you know, you're pressing your wine in that place, but it's not a good place to thresh wheat. So the, the whole point of threshing wheat, right, it has a husk on it, and as you thresh it, what you do is you throw it up in the air, and as it falls back down to the ground, the wind kind of carries away the chaff, which is lighter, and the heavier grain falls to the earth. So you got to separate the wheat from the chaff, and so the way you would do this is by, you know, grabbing big chunks of it, throwing it up in the air. Now, you would need to do that, though, above ground, you would never do that below ground because if you do it below ground, there's no wind to carry off the chaff. So it's kind of a, you know, practice in futility. And so being in a wine press is a really strange place to be threshing grain. You usually want to do that like on a hilltop or at least above ground in some way. So here's Gideon. What is he doing? Why is he in, in a pit in the ground, in a hole in the ground, trying to thresh his wheat? Well, the answer is that Gideon is hiding. He is scared and he's hiding from who? From the Midianites. Now, the Midianites were a local tribe at that time who had gotten very powerful. And they were kind of oppressing and harassing, and you might just simply say bullying the people of Israel. The Midianites, you know, they were bigger and they were stronger than the Israelites, and they were bullies. Rather than let the Israelites live in peace, they would harass them. 
right? They wouldn't totally conquer them. They would just kind of mess with them all the time. It says there at the beginning of Judges 6 that the Midianites, you know, would come into the Israelite villages and, and like kind of ransack their houses. So the Israelites move up into the caves which are around the Dead Sea there. So they're living in caves and they've been forced out of their villages. And the Midianites would also do this thing we read where they would wait for the Israelites to plant crops and they would let them do it. They'd let them till up the ground, plant the seeds, and then for months water the seeds, tend to their crops, and then when it came time to harvest it, they'd let the Israelites harvest all the, all the produce, and then they'd come over and be like, give us all your produce, right? So you just put in months of work, and these guys show up, and they take your produce from you. So they're like, they're like the kids at school who, you know, beat somebody up and take their lunch money, and they do it every single time. And so here's Gideon, and he's got a little bit of wheat that these uh, Midianites haven't found yet, so he says, I know what I'll do. I'll hide in this pit, and I'll try and separate this wheat and so, I, so they don't see me so they don't catch me. So what is he doing? He's, he's not being very courageous at this moment. He's kind of hiding. He's scared. He's afraid. He's weak. He's avoiding confrontation. He's not acting valiantly, you might say. And while Gideon is down in this pit, it says that the angel of the Lord, by the way, the word angel just simply means messenger. So this messenger from God shows up and speaks to him. And here's what the angel says. He says to him, the Lord is with you, O mighty man of valor. Mighty man of valor? Like Gideon must have been confused, right? Like looking over his shoulder, like who, who's, is there someone else down in this wine press that you're talking to? You're certainly not talking to me. Like you must have the wrong guy. You must have the wrong address, right? Like you, they wrote down the wrong address for you on a piece of paper and you ended up here. Because right now Gideon is the opposite of mighty and courageous. He's like weak and fearful. And yet God looks at Gideon and he speaks this title over him. He says, Gideon. I'm looking at you and I'm seeing something in you, about you, that other people don't see, that even you yourself don't see, Gideon. God is calling Gideon to live into this identity that God sees in him and speaks over him. And what we see from this is that apparently God has a different way of evaluating people than we do. God has a different way of evaluating people than we do. Apparently, God uses different criteria in order to assess people than the criteria we tend to use. When God looks at people, he sees them differently than when we look at people. And we see this kind of theme that runs throughout the Bible, that God says things about people where you look at that person, you're like, are you sure? Right, so like later on in Israel's history, the people of Israel get their first king. They've always wanted a king. They finally get one. His name's Saul, and he's awesome, right? He's like the quintessential born leader. He's like 6'5", he's tall, he's handsome, he's kingly in appearance. He's the kind of leader that you could be proud of, right? He's from a wealthy family. Outwardly, he's really like the perfect king. But God rejects Saul and chooses another man to be king instead. That man's name is David. Now, David is somebody that probably nobody would ever choose to be king. He's just not on anybody's radar. He doesn't look like a king. He doesn't come from a royal background. In fact, just the opposite. He was a shepherd and the son of a shepherd, which at that time, right, shepherds were considered kind of the lowest of the low. They were despised, looked down upon. It was a dirty, dangerous, low-paying job. Most families who owned sheep would hire people to take care of their sheep for them. But of course, David comes from a family where they're the people who get hired. They're, they're not a wealthy family. He's not nobility. He's not even the firstborn son in his own family. He's the youngest child in the family. This man, David, the Bible describes his appearance. It tells us that he was ruddy, which means 
like red hair and freckles, right? He's short, red hair and freckles probably. And God looks at David and God sees something in David that other people don't see when they look at David. God looks at David and says, he is a man after my own heart. Here's, here's how God explains it later on. When he explains him, him rejecting Saul and choosing David, he says, for the Lord sees, not as man sees, man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Again, the idea here is this, that God has a different way of evaluating people. He uses different criteria in order to judge people than the criteria we tend to use. And let's just think through that. I mean, what are some of the criteria that people generally use when it comes to evaluating or categorizing people? Well, one common way, right, is political affiliation, isn't it, right? So, you know, we'll talk about people in these broad categories, liberals and conservatives, you know, and you hear people, depending on what side you're on, talk about those guys, right? Those liberals think like this, or those conservatives want this. And what happens is you're, you're essentially reducing, right, over 300 million people in our population into two groups of people and acting as if they're monolithic, right? Those liberals are like this. Those conservatives are like this. The other thing that happens is that when you take one of those labels upon yourself, what you're saying, right, when you say I'm liberal or I'm conservative, it leads to tribalism. It's us versus them type of thinking where you make a lot of assumptions. And what happens in tribalism is this. You tend to assume that people in your tribe, right, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You tend to think the best and assume the best about them. But people in the other tribe, you do just the opposite. You assume bad motives upon them. Now, why do we do this? Why do we like to categorize people in this way? Well, I think the real reason, the simple reason, is because it's very easy. It's very convenient. It's very comfortable because it gives you the semblance that you know somebody and you know exactly what they're thinking and what they're feeling without actually having to get to know them, right? And so it makes life easy, so to say. But it's, it's a kind of cheap thing to do. So you can write people off. You can judge them. You can make determinations about their character based on that label that you give them. We do it with uh, lots of things, right? We do it with like generations, right? Like, oh, those darn millennials and their avocado toast and their ripped jeans, right? Ruining the world. And then the millennials are like, you know, okay, boomer, right? So, of course, when you, when you think about it, uh, it's ridiculous to think that you can reduce people, or hundreds of millions of people at that, to categories and then assume that you know them and assume that you know their motives. Um, again, when we do this, it's kind of like a cheap but comfortable way to make ourselves feel good by looking down on other people and saying, I'm glad I'm not one of them. You know, everyone in this world is looking for an identity. Everyone in the world is asking a question, who am I? And at the root of that question, who am I, is another question. There's an underlying question about value. The question is one about value. What gives my life purpose and meaning and value? What is it that makes me significant? What is it about me that would give other people a reason to love me and accept me and want me? That's what's at the core of this question of identity, is a question of value, a question of what makes me unique and what would give someone a reason to love me. And many people, they seek to build their identity and find their value and their worth and their significance in this way by contrasting themselves with other people. That's why we like to categorize people in this way, right? This is, this is the kind of thing that leads to racism, at least to sectarian thinking, all of these kind of things, right? But here's why. Because you're building your identity, you're finding your value and worth 
on the idea that you are somehow better than other people. And what you're telling yourself is, as long as I'm better than that person or those people, then I can feel good about myself. Then there's a reason why people should love me and accept me. Um, But of course, doing that requires you to look down on and exclude others, right? So you're building an identity at the expense of somebody else's identity. Another way that we tend to categorize people is based on appearance, right? So this includes things like economics and race and age, of course, as well, right? There have been a lot of psychological studies done on this that show how differently people tend to treat others based on appearance. I was listening to one that was about um, how long it takes for people to honk at somebody at a stoplight, a stoplight depending on the kind of car that they're driving, right? There's a, there's a ton of this that goes into our psychology about how we're geared to treat people differently based on appearances. Another key way that we uh, tend to categorize people or, um, you know, regard people is in according to vocation and function, vocation and functions. You know, I I think as Westerners, we tend to be functionalists. You know, a functionalist basically means this, that we equate someone's value with that person's function, right? So we we equate their value with their function. Basically, you are what you do, and what you do determines your value. That's why in our culture, this is one of the first things we ask somebody. We ask their name, and then immediately we want to know, what do you do? Because we want to make some sort of uh, judgment about them based on the job that they currently have. And and we do that, right? We make certain judgments, certain value uh, assertions based on those things. But this kind of thinking, right, it reduces someone. I would say it retracts from their humanity. It's not fair, because what we're doing is we're reducing someone to the function that they perform in society. And that has all kinds of negative effects, right? This kind of functionalist thinking was completely embraced by the Third Reich in Nazi Germany. I just came from Austria, which is the land of the sound of music, but it's also the land of Hitler. And, uh, and, you know, just thinking about this, that with Hitler, part of his ideology was that a person's value depends on their ability to contribute to society. Your value is equated with your ability to contribute to society. And, you know, initially, people loved Hitler and the programs that he was doing because Hitler went after the lazy people. And, and he went after the rich and the bankers and the merchants, who, by the way, were mostly Jewish, who worked very little because they made money off of their investments. And so the working class class people loved this, right? They're like, yeah, those people, you know, they shouldn't, we're the ones doing all the work. And then Hitler went after people who were on welfare, right? And he actually had a term for them. And the working class people loved this because they looked at Hitler and they said, this guy's like Robin Hood, right? Like he's taken on the fat cats, the bureaucrats, the entitled, the people on welfare who are just a drain on our society. And they thought he was a hero. But of course, then it progressed from there because that's where this functionalist thinking leads you. What about people who can't contribute because they're handicapped? What about people who can't contribute because they're elderly? What about people who have mental illnesses, right? They contribute less than they take, and Hitler had a term for them. He called them useless eaters. Think about that. And they were actually the first to be killed in the extermination camps before even the Jews, Useless eaters, people who he felt gave, had no function in society. He believed that life had less value if you didn't contribute, right? So your, your, your value is based on your function. And that's where this functionalist thinking naturally leads. This is kind of the end result of this that says that a person's value depends on how they function or perform. I was thinking, you know, what if you applied this to your wife, right? Like what if I applied this to my wife? I said, hey, here's my wife. 
Uh, let me tell you what's special about her. Uh, she is a dishwasher. She is a clothes washer. She is a child transporter. She is a food preparer, right? Like, I don't think she would really like that very much, right? That wouldn't really minister to her heart, right? Um, because she would say, those are things that I do, but that's not who I am, right? That's not the essence of who I am. That's just things that I do during the week. See, if you categorize people and make value assumptions based on their function, here's what will happen. You will inevitably overvalue some people and undervalue other people. And that's true of all of these categories that I mentioned of ways that we often do this, right? Politics, appearance, function, essentially all these categories. By associating this with someone's identity, what you're doing is, in a way, it's dehumanizing, and it's not really fair. You're reducing a person to something less than what they really are by making a determination about them based on some outward factor, like the color of their skin or their current job or the opinions that they hold about certain issues. See, one of the things that um, psychology have discovered is that when you label people, labeling people is very powerful and, and really detrimental depending on the label. It can also be very positive depending on the label. So what happens though when you label somebody is that that label that you gave that person then begins to affect your perception of that person, right? And, and that's true of yourself as well and how you label yourself. For example, if you label yourself and say, I'm just stupid, Right? If you label yourself, here's what will happen. There will be things that happen in your life that confirm that label, right? That seem to line up with that. And you say, yes, there it is. There's the proof that I'm stupid because I did this. But when you do something that, is, that doesn't align with that label, you'll tend to ignore that thing and push it away and say, no, 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 that was just an anomaly, right? And so this is true of lots of things. If you label somebody a certain way uh, or a group of people as being like this, then what will happen is that you will see those things that align with your label or your stereotype, and that will affirm your belief. And when you see things that don't align with it, you'll, you'll ignore that and say, well, that's just an anomaly. You know, that's just a one-off. Yeah, every, you know, every rule has exceptions. So one of the most important questions we can ask is this. What labels does God put on us? What labels does God put on people? How does he see me? Who does he say that I am? Those labels are really important in this case. Who does he say that other people are? How should I view them? What's the lens through which I should see them? Now just think about that idea of labels. Now think back with me to Gideon and David and think about how this applies. Gideon in this moment is not acting valiantly. He's not, right? But God speaks into his life and slaps a label on him. And the label is a positive one, right? It's Gideon, this is who you really are. You are a mighty man of valor. Maybe you're not acting like it right now, but this is an anomaly. This is not who you really are at core. This is God calling him into his greater identity. He says who you are is a man of valor, right? And that becomes the label, which then defines how Gideon's gonna think about himself from now on. It defines how we think about Gideon. With David, God slaps a label on this guy too and says, David, you're a man after my own heart. Now, there are times later on in David's life, which you probably know about in his life, where he sinned greatly. He did not act like a man after God's own heart in those instances. But because of that label that God put on him, we read it, when we read those stories about those times, we conclude, well, those must have just been anomalies. Those weren't who David really was because we know that at core, David was a man after God's own heart. And so the question is this, what are the labels that God would put on you? What are the labels that God puts on others that he wants to be the lens through which you see those people?
Paul the Apostle addresses this issue in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 in the text that we read here at the beginning just a minute ago. And he says this, I am going to make a determination. And that determination is this. From now on, I will regard no one. I will not regard anyone according to the flesh. What Paul is encouraging us to do is to not think about people based on the categories of this world, the categories that this culture tends to tell us. These are the categories that people fall into and and telling us not to label people with the categories of this world. Instead, he says, I want you to label people. I want you to categorize people based on the categories that I give them and put on them and yourself as well. So let's talk about what those are. And that brings us to our second point, which is a new way of regarding people, a new way of regarding people. So if we don't regard people according to the flesh, then what is the other alternative to doing that? Well, Paul tells us in verse 17 of 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he says the alternative is to regard people according to their spiritual condition, their spiritual condition. Verse 17, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. But let's think about that conversely. What's the converse of that? The converse of that is this. If anyone is not in Christ, then they are not made new. And the old has not passed away. Okay, what is the old that Paul is talking about in that case? The old in that case is our fallen nature. It's our, it's our natural condition. In Romans, uh, his letter to the Romans, Paul refers to this as the old man and the natural man. It's who we are by nature according to our fallen condition. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul explains that this old nature, right, unless God does a work of regeneration in somebody's life, we are all, by nature, spiritually dead. That's what it, why we need to be born again. It means that just as you were born physically, you also need to come alive spiritually. See, the lens uh, through which we should view people, in other words, is the lens of where they are at spiritually. That defines a person more than any other factor. Jesus famously said, What does it benefit a person? If they gain the whole world and yet lose their own soul, what, what benefit is to you if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Why? Because, as, as, as he says in 1 Timothy, you came into this world with nothing and you will leave this world with nothing, right? The person who dies with the mo- most stuff still dies, but your soul, that goes on, that lives forever. C.S. Lewis famously put it this way. He said, you have never met a mere mortal, You have never met a mere mortal. Every single person you have ever met is an eternal being. And he went on to explain it that it's not that you have a soul. He said you are a soul. You have a body. That part is temporary. But your soul, the core, the essence of who you are, that's eternal. And the Bible says that one day, all of us, right, we'll all stand before the throne of God. And not everyone's soul will have the same fate. The end of your physical life here on earth is not the end of you, right? Your soul, which is the essence, the core of who you are, that goes on. It exists for eternity. But where your soul spends eternity, that is a matter of the utmost importance. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is encouraging them to see people, to assess people, not by the categories of this world or the culture, but by spiritual categories, how God would label them. So, How would God label others? Well, there are a few things that we know for sure. Number one, we know this. God loves people. 
God loves people. He loves people so much that he became one of us in order to rescue us from the curse of sin and death. So what would God's label be for people in the world? It would be this, dearly loved, dearly loved. And one of the most incredible messages of the gospel, right, which is God's, the, the news of God's saving work of us. One of the greatest messages of the gospel is this, that God knows everything about you and he still loves you. Right? He knows all of your secrets. He knows all of your thoughts, even the bad ones, right? The ones that you think, if people knew that I was entertaining this thought, they would never speak to me ever again. And God knows it, and yet he loves you in spite of it. The next label that God would slap on people is this, valuable, intrinsically valuable. One of the ways that getting God's vision for people changes how we regard others is that we understand that all people have equal and intrinsic value. All people. According to God, a person's value is not determined by their function. It's not determined by their ability. It's not determined by their ethnicity. It's not determined by their gender. Our value as human beings comes from the fact that we have been created by God in his own image, by the fact that he knit you together, his word says, knit you together in your mother's womb. He has known you since before you were born, and God has been actively involved in the details of creating you and making you you, and your value comes from that. Therefore, the, right, the person who is wheelchair-bound for the rest of their life has as much value as the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. The person with cerebral palsy, the person with Down syndrome, has as much value as the professional athlete. The poor have as much value as the billionaires. This, value, this version of, of human value, by the way, is not universal. It has not always been just accepted that this is true. No, this comes directly from our theology, from the Holy Scriptures of the Bible. When Paul says this phrase, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What he's telling us is this. In Christ, people are no longer defined by their past mistakes. In Christ, you are no longer defined by your past mistakes, by your past failures, the things that you might be ashamed of. In Christ, you are not defined by those things. You know, Paul experienced this himself when he became a Christian. He can read about it in the book of Acts, you know, starting really in, in chapter 6 and going up to about chapter 11 in this case. Uh, I find it to be a really interesting story because here's what happened. Prior to becoming a Christian, Paul was a Jewish religious leader who persecuted Christians. He dragged, you know, led groups of people. They would, you know, kick down doors, drag people out of their houses, and they would put them on these, these you know, quick trials to accuse them of blasphemy. And then, you know, they would stone them to death for being convicted of blasphemy. And, and so Paul was doing this all over Jerusalem. Christians were fleeing the city, trying to get away, trying to become refugees. And a big place they were fleeing to was a town called Damascus, which of course is still the capital of Syria today. Uh, but it's not very far from Jerusalem. And so people were fleeing to Damascus. Uh, the Christians were kind of as refugees. And so Paul was going after them in Damascus as well. But here's what happened. Even though Paul wasn't looking for Jesus, Jesus came looking for Paul. Isn't that awesome? Right? Isn't that for so many of us? That's the story of of our life. I wasn't looking for Jesus, but he came looking for me, and that is good news. So Jesus comes looking for Paul and gets his attention in a dramatic way, knocks him down, makes him blind, speaks to him in this vision, and Paul is converted that very day. What's well, an awesome story, right? I bet the Christians there in Damascus and Jerusalem, they must have been so excited that Paul the persecutor had now become Paul the Christian, except they weren't. 
They weren't excited about it at all. In fact, they were just the opposite of excited. Some of the people thought that this was a trap, right? Like Paul's just trying to make them think that he's converted so that he can like infiltrate their churches and then really hurt them. Other people thought, well, you know what? Um, That's cool and all that Paul wants to be a Christian, but he's still not welcome because of the things he did in the past. He's just too much for too long. Sorry, you're not welcome. And in fact, there was a man there, a Christian in Damascus, that God had to speak to and send him to visit Paul. And that guy, his name was Ananias. God said, I want you to go meet Paul. And he said, he's praying, which meant that he had been converted, right? So he says, I want you to meet Paul. He's praying. And Ananias is like, no thanks. Like, I don't want to go meet that guy. I've heard about the evil things that he's done. That's literally what he said. And God said, no, no, no. I want you to go and talk to him because He is my chosen vessel to take my name before kings and rulers and Gentiles. In other words, what is God doing? He's helping Ananias to have a different vision for this person than the one which he naturally had, which was, this guy is a bad person. I don't want anything to do with him. And so Ananias goes. He prays for Paul. He baptizes Paul, which is incredible. And then it says something really interesting. Paul gets chased out of town by the Jews. And then what happens? Well, for years, Paul doesn't seem to really land in a church, so to say. It says that he goes to Jerusalem, visits the people there, kind of says, hey, guys, I'm converted. And they're like, hey, cool, shake his hand. And then he goes and spends a couple years in the desert by himself, apparently. And then where we finally see him in Acts chapter 11, he's now living with his parents, it seems like, right? He's moved back to his hometown of Tarsus, which is in like eastern Turkey. I I don't know about you, but I kind of just picture it, you know, that Paul's back in his room where he grew up with his twin bed and his band posters, like from when he was in high school, like covering the walls. And, And it wasn't until a guy named Barnabas, one of the leaders of the church in Antioch, Uh, comes and meets with Paul and tells him, come with me, bro. I don't want you, you don't, God wants to use you. Come with me. You're going to come with me down to Antioch. You're going to be part of what God's doing at the church there. In other words, it wasn't until this one guy reached out and embraced him that, that the Christians really embraced Paul because of his past. You see, it would seem that for the early Christians, they had a really hard time accepting Paul and not defining Paul by his past sins. And so this is something that's close to Paul's heart. You know, he wants the Corinthians and us to remember this. If anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. In Christ, we are not defined by our past sins and mistakes. Now, let me just kind of measure that by saying this. That doesn't mean that we throw out wisdom. It doesn't mean that we throw caution to the wind when it comes to dealing with people and, and things they've done in the past. So for example, when I pastored in Hungary, we had this guy in our church who had been convicted of uh, sexually molesting teenage boys. He had spent time in jail for it. It was, you know, he did it, right? And, and um, he had been in jail and he was repentant. And so of course, you know, he was in our church. Um, but at one point he asked if he could serve in our youth group as a youth mentor and he would be mentoring one-on-one with boys who are teenage boys. And of course the answer was, no, you can serve in other places in our church. There are other ministries where you can be used and we love you and you're part of this body. But that, that ministry is not going to be available to you. And he said, but why? He, and he quoted this verse, I'm a new creation. Don't I get a fresh start, a clean slate? And the answer is absolutely yes, you do. But as a new creation, as a repentant person, right? You want to be wise uh, to the ways in which you've been tempted in the past. And you want to avoid every appearance of evil, 
So we keep those two things in mind, but we want to view people with the labels that God gives them, not the labels that our culture gives people. And those labels that God would give people are these, eternal, loved, valuable. So seeing people the way that God sees them will will cause us to look at people and consider their spiritual needs. It means that a person can be rich materially and poor spiritually at the same time and vice versa. Right, so seeing people the way God sees them will inevitably lead to loving people the way God loves them. And think about this. How has God expressed his love for people? Well, one of the key ways, perhaps the key way he has done it is through his actions and specifically through his mission. That is the expression of God's love for people, is his actions in mission towards people. Right? It's seeking us, saving us through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Now just think about what that means for you and me. If we are going to see people as God sees them, if we're going to love people as God loves them, then the way to do that is to join God in his mission in the world. And what does that mean? Well, God's mission has two parts. On the one hand, God's mission is about showing. And on the other hand, God's mission is about sharing. Showing and sharing. Showing people the love of God and the heart of God, right, through practical acts of kindness and compassion. That's showing. But also sharing, sharing with them the truth, the truth of God's word, the truth of the message of salvation through Jesus. Imagine somebody you love, right? Imagine someone you, you see in someone the symptoms of a sickness which you used to have and you know that it's life-threatening and you remember what you had to go through to be cured and healed of it, but this person doesn't recognize that they're sick. Well, what would you do? You would tell them about your experience, wouldn't you? This is what happened to me. I was in the same place that you're in right now. And you would seek to persuade them. Why? Because you love them. Because you care about them. You want the best for them. You're not cramming stuff down their throat. You're not being pushy and rude and mean and dangerous. No, you're trying to reach out in love to somebody you care about. That is the heart of evangelism. See, in Acts chapter 17, uh, we're told this about God and about us. And I I love this verse. I I want you to think about this. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 17. He, that's God, he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined, here, check this out, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Okay, think about what that's saying because it's really profound. I think it will actually change the way that you think about your life and about other people that you know. See, what it's saying is this. In your life, sometimes you might feel that things are just randomly happening to you, right? Like you're like a passive victim to your circumstances. Things are just happening. It's completely just random and out of control. But the truth is, this verse is telling us, that there is in fact a sovereign God who is providentially working in your life, and he has a plan and a purpose. Therefore, the details of your life are appointed and managed by God for a reason, for a purpose. And what is that purpose? Here it is right there in the text, that you should seek God, that you should seek God. What is God's purpose with your current circumstance, with that thing that is happening to you right now? Here's what it is. He has allowed that situation in your life so that you would seek him, so that it would drive you into his arms, that it would push you towards him. But here's what I want you to do. Don't stop there. Don't stop there with just thinking about your own circumstances. Think about what that means as it relates to developing God's vision for other people. 
If God determines the times and the places of people so that they will seek him, what does that mean for your next door neighbors? What that means is that your next door neighbors aren't just living next door to you if you're a believer by random chance. It means that your classmates, your office mates, every man, woman, and child has been placed there by God. Why? So that you can help them seek God and find hope and redemption and love and forgiveness and purpose and value in him. See, you are both the con, uh, you're both the consequence of God's mission and you are the conduit of God's mission. The consequence and the conduit of God's mission. The people who you encounter as you go about your life, they have been placed there by God in your path. Why? So you can help them on their journey of seeking God and finding relationship with him. And that brings us to our last final point, which is this. Regarding him who regarded you. Regarding him who regarded you. In verse 16, Paul admits, he says, look, I used to think about Jesus even according to the flesh, even though I no longer do. What he's saying is, the way that he perceives Jesus, who Jesus is, has changed over time. The change has happened, right, in how he views Jesus. To regard Jesus only according to the flesh is something that a lot of people do. To regard Jesus according to the flesh is what we do when, when somebody says, you know, Jesus was a good teacher, he was a kind person, he was a good example, period, right? Nothing more, that's all. The problem with that view is that, once again, it is reducing Jesus to what? To his function. It's reducing Jesus to his function, what he did rather than who he was. And now the problem with doing that is this. If Jesus' value is that he was a good teacher and a kind person and a good example, well then, isn't it really anybody who does those things who would then be on the same level, on par with Jesus? I could be a good teacher, and a good example and a kind person? Does that mean I'm basically the same as Jesus if I perform that function? Of course not. There's something unique and different about Jesus because of who he is. Who he is. See, the whole message of Christianity and the gospel is about who Jesus is. That's why all four of the gospels are hyper-focused, not just on what Jesus did, but on who he is who he is, his, his identity, not just his actions. John's gospel, for example, begins with an explanation of who Jesus is. He is the creator of the universe, guys, right? He is, he is God who came to dwell among us. He is the lamb of God who takes the sins of the world. That's all in like the first half of the first chapter. He's telling us this is who Jesus is. That's why what he does is significant. Matthew and Luke begin their gospels with um, genealogies of Jesus, which we think, oh, genealogies, I'll just skip over that. What's the, but it's significant. Why? Because it's telling us who Jesus is, his identity, that he is, in fact, the Savior, the Messiah, God come to save us, right? And the message of the gospel is this, that God had regard for you. That's why it matters who Jesus was. It means that God had regard for you. He took interest in you. He cared about your plight. He saw your need and had regard for you because he loves you. And if you embrace what he did for you, if you embrace by faith and received the gift of God's grace towards you, then guess what happens? Then he makes you, as we read in our text, a new creation. The old will be in the past, and you are made new in him. That's the hope. That's the promise of the gospel. And it's because of God's regard for us that we give regard to him. 
that we worship him, we follow him, we serve him, we do what he calls us to do. And it's God's regard for us that shapes how we then regard others. So by God's grace, may we see people and love people and serve people in the ways that God has loved and served us. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you had regard for us. Lord, may we have regard for others according to your criteria, according to the way that you see them and want us to see them. Lord, thank you that you took notice of us, you cared about us. And Lord, may we respond and have regard for you by giving you our lives. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in here today who hasn't put their faith in your finished work, Jesus, on the cross, where as you were dying your last breath, you said, it is finished. Everything that needed to be done to take away your sins, to make you right with God, you did it for us. Thank you for that, Lord. And I pray for anyone here today who hasn't yet put down their yes. Maybe they're right on the fence. Lord, I pray that even now as we're praying, this would be the time when they say yes. Um, and so, Lord, for those of us who have known you for a while, Lord, help us to walk in the strength of your spirit and apply these things in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.